Well, I have to say, I feel like something of an intruder. Uh, I only met Patrick Wolf, unfortunately, on the page. Um, and I have not situated my work within colonial uh, settler studies. So it's, um, this is a bit of a new direction for me. Um, however, having said that, when people ask me, why do you work on Algeria, I've come up with a very sophisticated response. And the truth of it is that when I was an MA student in a Middle Eastern Studies program, and I proposed working on Palestine, everybody around me, who I think cared a great deal about me and my psychological health, said, please don't do that. Uh, why don't you look at another settler colony? So in some ways, I'm coming back a decade later to, um, to what I left. Um, and I'm going to take up Lorenzo's invitation to think about this in a dialectical manner um, and make kind of bolder claims than I would make if I was not in this company. So um, as I indicate in the title, I set out to write this paper on a pretty narrow set of observations. I worked on colonial administrators and technocrats um, in the late 1950s when they're trying to economically develop Algeria. And I, I noticed that these people who are interested in very disparate things, whether that's you know, the cultivation of oranges or the arrangement of territorial sovereignty, they kept coming back to Israel as a model. Um, at the same time, after re-engaging with Patrick Wolf's work, um, a bunch of larger questions about race and racial formation came up. So I'm going to try to do a bit of both of that work in this paper. Um, and I'm going to argue that you know, scholars who work on Algeria are very hesitant to foreground the notion of race. Uh, and some of this, I would say, has to do with the myth of the civilizing mission and republicanism. Um, and for me, this is an example of how race can operate in denial, um, as Patrick Wolfe's phrase would have it. But unlike in Brazil, uh, which is what Patrick Wolfe was talking about in using this phrase, where race is denied by color, I would say that in Algeria, race is denied by religion. Um, and it's interesting to think about Fanon uh, as we were doing kind of, I don't know, he's been somehow present in this conversation since the beginning, um, who you know, in many ways misses some of the insights, as does Bourdieu, about Islam um, and, the, and the role of, um, of Muslim identity in Algeria, which also brings us back to kind of the gap between black and white Africa that I've been thinking about. Um, so I'm going to present a few examples of how and why Israel was such a fascinating example for my technocrats. And some of this is quite obvious, um, the convergence between France and Israel during decolonization, moments like the Suez Crisis, of course the Cold War. But I would say that Patrick Wolf's work opens up other ways to think about um, this parallel. Um, for example, this, the slippages and sedimentations between race and religion. Um, or between the ethno-religious past and ethno-nationalist present, those are his terms, um, the necessary work of deracination, and the importance of the environment for racializing a group of people. Um, so I'm going to start with some archival material and then make some broader claims. So for all of the ambiguity surrounding the so-called war without a name, that is the Algerian War of Independence, in the late 1950s, a rather famous political scientist and specialist in law, Jean-Louis Kermon, was very frank in writing an article where he called Algeria a colonie de peuplement, or a settler colony. And despite the language of the Fourth Republic, which had made it very uncouth to talk about race and colonialism by foregrounding you know, the, the French Union rather than the French Empire, um, Kermon actually found reasons to rejoice in uh, France's colonial endeavor in Algeria. He writes, quote, it is one of the glories of France that she did not submit to the fate of so many other settler colonies where extermination avoided the question of cohabitation to be posed at a later date, unquote. 
So in other words, the failure of the extermination project allows for a discussion about cohabitation. And for him, this is something that the France, that French um, politicians and administrators should pat themselves on the back for. Um, again, the preservation of both communities is a testament to France's unity and patriotism. Those are his words. But underneath this pride, there's a nagging fear in the article, which is that the Islamic character of the Maghreb would impose a theocracy, and finally, this fragile cohabitation would be impossible. And so again, in discussions of integration or assimilation, Islam seems to be this insurmountable obstacle. Um, this discussion then leads Kahmoud in this article to analyze a series of proposals that were collectively known in the 1950s as the Israeli solution for Algeria. And the most well-known of these was the Ersan project, the Projet Ersan, which was submitted to the French National Assembly in 1957. Um, and this plan also gets taken up by the Mission d'Etudes and other technocrats who are wondering what do we do with, with this territory. Um, the plan itself calls for an independent Algerian state to be created between Mer the Moroccan border to the west and a line that passed just to the east of Algiers. In this region, close to four and a half million Muslims would live alongside 100,000 Frenchmen. The region of Tlemcen, which was almost entirely Muslim, would have a special status. And in more radical versions of this plan, administrators postulated that Tunisia might annex the eastern part of Algeria, and Morocco would annex the west of the territory. The center remaining portion, um, luckily, would allow access to the Sahara and its <laughs> oil and nuclear resources. So of course, the, the example of Jordan and the West Bank is so obvious here, and the planners don't mention that themselves, but when you think of the annexation of this territory, this cutting away, um, for me, it's quite striking. And again, you know, this is not a new insight that Israel was an example for Algeria. Um, Patrick Wolf um, cites this in his work that Algeria had been a model for colonization in Israel since the late 19th century. So this is not new, although I think the Cold War brings a different language to the table. Um, so the experts at the French Department of Hydraulics are also looking to Israel at this time. And one of them wrote that the problem of, ac of economic development in Algeria is as much a question of territorial strategy as of agricultural modernization. Sometimes my technocrats are actually quite frank in what they're trying to do, and it gets me away from that technocratic drivel that I have to read through otherwise. So one of my experts writes, quote, the vital necessity to occupy the terrain by all means in order to preserve the integrity of national territory, of course this is French national territory, can justify enormous investments in the terra rossa of the Galilee or the conquest of the Negev Desert. And so the report continues by saying that there might need to be these very extravagant techniques, but the political implications are really primordial. Um, and I think there's another discussion uh, to be had about the way sovereignty and race operate in this developmentalist moment of the Cold War, uh, where sovereignty in some ways is depoliticized, but I'll, um, I'll table that for now. If the political concerns trumped environmental realities for these experts, um, this was undoubtedly rooted in the fact that Algerian colony, the Algerian colon, like the Israeli settlers, had embraced, had embarked on a, quote, relationship between the people and the land that mutually realized both. And when you read the Quran writing about wine and blood, this is something that keeps coming up. They write about them um, cultivating wine being an instantiation of their blood and the Algerian soil. I mean, the, the imagery is very striking. Um, and I would say that both projects are attempts to expand the continental boundaries of white Europe. 
And there are spaces where a relationship between a people and the land inscribe these external ge geographical spaces as places located within the civilizational realm of Europe. So when the National School of Agriculture in Algiers sends students to Israel to study Israeli agricultural techniques, um, they don't beat around the bush as to why Israel has been chosen as a destination. One of the reports quotes uh, Theodore Herzl and his belief that a new race of Jews would emerge from the soil. The report continues, quote, despite Israel's isolation in the midst of a hostile world that unites its forces, planning for future attacks, we can be confident that this is a people that knows what it wants and has faith in its future. Um, very quickly, I would just um, I would make a side note here that there is an entire language of Mediterranean development that's emerging during the Cold War, which is another way in which Israel and French Algeria come into contact. So rather than wine in this kind of Latin imaginary um, that we know, uh, for things like citrus fruits that are going to be imported um, into Europe from Algeria and Israel uh, have a new place of, of importance. And one thing that does is erase the Arab population that had been historically engaged in subsistence agriculture. So they're not the people sending the citrus fruit to the FAO uh, conferences on Mediterranean development. Um, and there are echoes here of an older interwar period of studying the Mediterranean race, something called the Mediterranean race, uh, which you can see in people like Bertrand Roussel um, or Albert Camus. I mean, this, is a, um, this is something that's been written about quite a bit. Um, lastly, I would say the fascination with Israel extends to the Saharan Desert, where French experts interested in human settlement in arid zones are very much in contact with Israeli engineers um, and, and visit the Institute of Arab Zones in Beersheba, etc. Um, so I've, I've kind of laid out a few instances where in my work I've seen this link, and here I want to try to extrapolate a bit. Um, and I'd like to suggest that engaging with Wolf's theoretical insights help me excavate some of the similarities that has been kind of hidden by this investment in the French civilizing mission. And one of them is the notion that Muslims, a category defined by religion, cannot be the object of racialization because of their relative physical similarity to Europeans, especially those who come from the South. Wolf's account of Israel opens up a more nuanced approach. And sorry, I know the nuance, we're supposed to do less nuance. Am I doing the nuance thing again? <laughs> more polemic, dialectical, uh, Marxist. Okay. Um, it's so not a nuanced approach, a more polemic approach, that invites us to think about how religious and racial categories can not only be pulled apart, as in the case of Israel, but can also be articulated together. So for example, his claim regarding the Mizrahim, that, in, this is his quote, in Israel, religion operates as a racial amnesty. No one has to be told that the Arabs in no Arabs, no terror are Jewish, unquote. So if, if Arab Jews have been deracinated in Israel, they were similarly integrated into, the, into French Algeria with the Crimea decree that some mentioned. But the goal here was not to uphold a religious principle above all. It was not a form of racial amnesty, as Wolf calls it, but to single out the element of difference um, that even conversion would not erase. So that is, even Algerian Muslims who did convert had this very strange legal category they were called the Musulman Catholic, or Catholic Muslims, which makes no sense in a religious <laughs> register. The notion is there's no legal way for this population to rid itself of the stain of being Muslim. But deracination does not only occur through the intermediate category of the Arab Jews. It's all the also the foundation upon which the settler colonial population, or the Pieds Noirs, are constituted. 
And I find it interesting that the boundaries of whiteness in Algeria far exceed the boundaries of whiteness that governed Europe, where the ragtag population of Spanish, Italian, and Maltese were seen as racial others at this point. And so there's a deep historical irony in the fact that at the very moment where ethno-nationalism is the prevailing logic in the metropole, these divided lines are being trespassed in Algeria precisely to create this melting pot population that were naturalized in 1889, that is, these people who came from um, different countries became French. And so perhaps we should not be surprised that it is around this time that the drive to eliminate the native population has been subdued. By this point in, in French colonial imaginary, elimination is not the priority. And so de demographic questions become uh, more important. And this, for me, goes back to some of the discussions about how colonial regimes change over time um, and also define themselves relationally. So to conclude, I'd like to pursue one more line of comparison that was opened up for me by Patrick Wolf's work, which is the case of Brazil. And this is um, quite experimental. So if there are any Brazil experts in this room, please go be, be nice. Uh, not That's a non-polemic spirit. That's where we can do more hybridity. <laughs> uh, so the major theorists of French civilization and race, people like um, Braudel or Ladue Strauss, had well-documented debts to Brazil in the development of their thought on race. So Wolf argues that Israel and Brazil, quote, both rely on a deracination whereby an otherwise majority population is fragmented, unquote. For me, this is the mirror image of the Algerian case in which a majority population, initially fragmented, is deracinated in order to expand the boundaries of whiteness. And this is one way, I think, of explaining the fascination that Brazil held on these French social scientists in the 1930s. Um, and again, in the, in the context of decolonization and the Cold War, this becomes reinterpreted. And my planners postulate that Algiers might become a kind of Brasilia Algerienne or Algerian Brasilia. Brasilia, the city designed by Oscar Niemeyer, who incidentally also had a number of, ag of agriculture, of um, projects in Algeria, is a kind of high modernist fantasy in which the colonial legacy would be completely erased. So it's a foil for the old colonial coastal capital of Rio de Janeiro. The invocation of this image for Algeria thus signals a departure from the colonial vision that did win out in 1962. This approach to urbanism is nothing less than the fantasy, and I would say very much a fantasy, of total and radical erasure. And the fact that this project is never realized confirms Braudel's own claim that Algeria is a, quote, failed Brazil. To bring back this parallel into conversation with Wolf's work, one could say that this perceived failure stemmed precisely from the inability to fragment a majority population in Algeria. And perhaps I would suggest the ethno-nationalist present was too heavily weighted with an ethno-religious past. Um, so just to conclude, uh, I, I think that this conversation, for me at least, in my own work, helped me get around kind of this um, very dogged insistence on assimilation and representation and identity, um, and it allows kind of categories that move across space and time. Um, and Wolf's suggestion that assimilation is, quote, primarily about the elimination of indigeneity, unquote, reminds us that while assimilation in Algeria did in fact succeed in affirming the indigeneity of the settlers, it always had a, relation, a relational uh, relationship, that seems redundant, but regardless, to the, to, you know, the Kabyle myth, um, as well as the Algerian Jews. Um, so I'm going to end there. And, uh,